Pop. Welcome to Popaholics, the show about hot takes, hotter than pancakes, where we're just a couple of deep divers diving deep. This is your first time listening to the show. We take every month to make a theme on pop culture. We talk about a lot of movies, but we also talk about music and art, literature, and video games. We talk about whatever we want. It's a show where we come together and talk about what we've been consuming and try to make it a little consistent. And we appreciate you joining us for this ride. Uh, normally, we have a couple of co-hosts and maybe a special guest, but we have a very intimate episode. That's right. Light the candles, turn off the electric lights, and get comfy because it is just your favorite two bros on the podcast mm. today, Christian Katie and Brian Dupree. Brian, how are you doing, man? I am doing all right. Definitely not stressed out about trying to record tonight at all. <laughs> <laughs> running you've you've recently moved we've run into some technical difficulties but we are we are on our fast track to uh to getting this pot out which is good it's gonna happen we're gonna be on time this week folks we don't need we don't need chris we don't need chris at all we're not missing him we don't miss him at all i i miss chris very much and i'm happy that he's still in contact on facebook at least yes chris has gone on a a long cruise i believe he's on a boat having a great time didn't invite us thanks for the invite chris really appreciated that Wow. But we will move on without him. Today's episode, today's month is going to be time travel month in light of a recent giant film. No spoilers for that. But it is in some way, shape, or form influenced us to theme our next month around time travel. So we picked some of our favorite time travel movies, and we're going to be diving into those. Uh, We're first going to start off with what we've been consuming. Uh, We're going to bring that episode back, uh, and we're going to talk about... Our weekly poll that we have. You can check out those weekly polls on Facebook. And then we're going to get into the movie Primer. Primer is our first uh, movie that we're going to be covering. Uh, uh, my pick. My pick for this. And we're going to talk about the mechanics of its time travel. Uh, the kind of themes about it. And our opinions on it. And uh, we'll be diving into that. So we're going to start the way that we always do. with, with the, Which is uh, what we've been consuming. Brian, I see that you've been reading a book. You've been trying to squeeze that into the old life, getting the good book in. Tell me about it. I have. I have. And, you know, this has actually been years in the making. This book came out in, I believe, 2014, and I've been trying to read it uh, off and on since then. And I finally came back to it. I Basically, the last chapter has taken me months to get through just because I've been putting it down. But this is Jerusalem by Alan Moore. It is when it came out. It was one of the top 10 longest books in the English language, and it was above the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is considered one book if if people don't realize that. I I know I didn't before this book came out, so I've read the first third of this three-part book, and it's called Jerusalem. And this is Alan Moore's kind of—I don't know if he'd consider it his magnum opus, but it took him approximately 10 years to write. Um, It's this giant, expansive novel all about— Um, his hometown of Northampton in the UK. So this is where he was born in the same house that he's lived in his entire life, and he now lives there with his wife. And he calls this book a genetic mythology. So it is fiction, but it's largely based on real real experiences that he's had and historical events that do exist in the real world. So it's very much an informative read, even though it is fiction. So the way this first book is set up is that every chapter is narrated by a different character. And we start out in the present with two characters who I think both are kind of supposed to be Alan Moore, um, 
like stand-ins for Alan Moore. Surrogates, exactly. So there's a brother and sister who uh, come from a long line of – their family has a long history of mental illness that is passed down through through the years. So we get introduced to them, and then we backtrack and see the first member of their family, this guy named Snowy Vernal, who used to work on repainting cathedrals, the dome paintings in cathedrals. And at some point he quote-unquote lost his mind, and we see – pretty much everything that's happened since then. It's the kind of book that you can't really sum up in a few sentences, but this book touches on everything from, for example, something that I never knew uh, that that this book taught me was the song Amazing Grace was actually written by someone who had formerly owned slaves and came to God, became a pastor, and wrote this song about his own sins and coming to terms with that. And I feel like it's something, especially with the way that song is used today— is brings very interesting context, you know, and it's something that I feel like most people don't know about. So that's just one example of this expansive book that goes through metaphysical ideas about death, things like angels, supernatural entities, but also tragedies like uh, rape and how society treats the downtrodden and all of these things. And it's something I can't recommend so highly it's a, enough. It's a light. It's a light read. <laughs> Far from a light read, but definitely has funny moments. You're saying it's the Ant Man and the Wasp of literature. <laughs> it's a mid tier, low tier Marvel movie for comparison. <laughs> no, this this book is incredible. I can't wait to continue on, but I will say I got to put it down for a bit. I'll come back to book two at some point in the future. But this book's incredible. Maybe not the best place to start for uh, for Alan Moore, who, if listeners don't know, is the a critically acclaimed author of Watchmen, V for Vendetta, got famous doing his um, run on Swamp thing where he revamped that character. Incredible, incredible author and uh, self-proclaimed magic practitioner. So uh, oh. look into that. <laughs> it sounds like a dense read. It sounds like you really got to buckle in and uh, commit to it. It is. It is definitely that. There was one chapter, the, the chapter that really made me put it down for a while was a chapter that was based from the perspective of a character who is a part of this family with a history of mental illness. And this guy essentially is, I don't know if you've ever read or are familiar with Slaughterhouse-Five, but the main character in that book is like unstuck in time. So this character is similarly out of time where he can just lose himself in the present moment and see far down the line into the future, far down the line into the past. And the way he can express this verbally, it's almost too much to handle. It's like, <laughs> I don't need the, I can't, I can't handle this much description in my, in my literature, but uh, it's brilliant. It's, it's freaking brilliant. So it's, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty sizable book. Definitely. Definitely. I think it's close to a million words. It's um, the first, the first book that I read was I want to say 250, 275 pages with real small font, a lot of words on the page, which I just sound like a child at this point, but this is, it's no, a slow, no. it's a slow read. No, I think that uh, reading in general is, is something that started with our generation as something that we didn't really have to do as much with the internet. We could shortcut a lot of things. That's and true. I find myself that I can't, uh, I can't read nonfiction very well. But I can listen to Same. it several times on like an audiobook. And then when it comes to fiction, I can't really listen to even I got the Game of Thrones series on audiobook. And I love audiobooks and podcasts, but I just couldn't get I just couldn't get into it. And it's well done. It's got music, it's got several voice actors, it's got a narrator narrator voice and stuff. And that book mm. is actually similarly designed. It's a different perspective of the characters as it goes through with the with the George R. R. Martin series. Um, okay. but 
I just I can't do it. And I, I and I but for nonfiction, I picked up uh, the console wars. I bought the book. I have the physical book. I got three chapters and loved it, but then was like on my way to work. And I was like, I need to listen to this. And then immediately bought it in audio format. And I've oh, been wow. going through that. I'll have that on my what I've been consuming uh, later this month after I finish it. But uh, and it's nonfiction. It's told really narratively, but it's, it's nonfiction. But I find that uh, I mean, have you tr- what is your experience listening to this kind of stuff on audiobooks? How do you feel? You know, there was a period probably three or four years ago when I had never listened to an audiobook and started finding some ones that were for free on YouTube. Uh-huh. Questionable legality, but since it was on YouTube, I figured I wouldn't be held responsible. But yeah. um, I listened to a few there and really enjoyed it. But I feel like the most of most of the time when I'm listening to things, it's at work. And with yep. things like a book, it's hard for me to give that much conscious attention to something that I want to. Um, that's why podcasts, I, I tend to listen to podcasts or music at work, something that generally can just be in the background, you know, passive listening of sorts. But um, definitely have been talking to a friend this weekend even about getting back into Audible. There's a couple of nonfiction books that, that I've been meaning to read, and I'm the same as you. I, I can't really read nonfiction these days, and I don't know if I, if I ever could, but it's definitely similar for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is uh, Jerusalem, book one. Uh, is, is he finished with, with all three books? No? Yeah, he he released them all at the same time. Oh, okay. But they okay. were just broken up but into separate. into three. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's a that is a that's a tall order, especially it's a monster. Yeah, that's it's a lot to write. I just I don't envy the ability to write that. Uh, <laughs> that's, that seems like a nightmare. Writing a book <laughs> for ten years is uh, I've never done. I don't think anything for ten years. <laughs> like, right. <consistently. laughs> um, cool. So go check that out. That's uh, probably on Audible. Might be interesting to see or uh, or wherever books are sold, which is. Uh, on Amazon. So just give Amazon money. Uh, you know, I said, uh, I'm going to go into my, what I've been consuming. You know, I have been listening to the console wars and to your point, I've been playing a game called city skylines available for uh, console. There's a version for console PC and Mac. And I was actually listening to the console wars on while I was playing this. And to your point, uh, I realized that I was so engrossed in this game that I had not absorbed anything and, and I'm okay. Like, and, <laughs> That's totally fine. I just went back to the last chapter I remember paying attention to. Super mm-hmm. easy, right? Uh, and yeah. I would pick up on little blurbs. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember slightly hearing that, but realizing I was not paying attention. But this is City Skylines. This is the spiritual successor to the SimCity series. Um, uh-huh. The last SimCity that came out was panned and did not do super well. It's made by EA, and I've talked about Anthem and EA's creations in the past. Uh, not a great track record. Uh, for anything but sports games uh, at this point that they seem to flub most things they touch and but this game is just like it is a indie triple a game this game is you it's so dense this game starts you off and unless you've watched a youtube video uh, you will fail and essentially in this game you build your own city but it's it is so deep in the idea you have to you have to think about electricity and having enough power on your grid and you can enact policies as mayor ma- ma- mayor and you have to organize your roads and you build all the road systems and then you have to zone out for residential and industrial and commercial zoning and you've got different options there and it takes it a step further where you build your whole infrastructure and then your industrial zone has to deliver goods to the commercial zone by trucks and then there are things that they need that you're not producing it that they'll get from the region which is a separate road that you have to make sure you have access to 
And essentially it turns into, it is a city builder designed as a traffic management game. And oh I know gosh. this does not sound appealing. I was telling a friend about this, like super excited. I'm like, dude, I started playing this game and it's got all these working systems. And like what happens is like you get a gridlock and you got to figure out public transit options. Uh, and he's like, I don't know what you're doing a second job. That is not. Uh, but this <laughs> game, dude, I played for eight hours straight. And I have a, a somewhat older Mac. It's a beefy Mac, but it is a older Mac. And, and Macs are notoriously not ideal for gaming. And it worked pretty good in the start. Once I got to three separate large cities, I mean, I, I was smelling burnt plastic on my machine. Like, this thing was... Oh, oh. my gosh. Wow. So I, uh, that is to announce that I have invested in a, you know, a business expense. I ordered, I ordered a new computer uh, so, I can, nice. so I can play this game better. Uh, I am so excited. I actually haven't touched it since my eight-hour stint because I... I want to enjoy it with with a better machine because I can't even load my city at this point. It is crazy. You can zoom out and you can see miles of city that you've created and connected. And you can get lost in an hour of making a train system uh, and managing cargo and and, and making a really sick train system. Or, Or you can make mistakes like me and put... I put a retention facility that ejects sewage water but i put it on the top of the hill near my town and all the oh. all the poop water ran downhill and started flooding my town with poop water and they all started getting sick um and and you can have this great <laughs> giant view but you can zoom in and see people walking around taking your public transit systems uh it's so it's it's very it's uh, i i was talking my friend kind of a friend of the show, Zach Nolinger, showed me this game years ago because it's been out for a while and they've they've since updated it. And okay. he said he he said he deleted it from his system because it's the heroin of uh, games. <laughs> so that's what I I tried heroin, guys, and uh, it's good. It's real good. Hey, but you put it down after one long stint, so maybe you uh, you got some willpower there. Uh, well, it's uh, I'm I'm jonesing. I'm jonesing real hard, <laughs> but I I wanted to play. I didn't even think my Mac could handle it, but I wanted to try. And I was like, well, this is actually handling it pretty good. And then I was getting like one frame per second, which is to say, like nothing was happening on screen for for and it. Like just would if I tried to zoom in at all, it would just freeze. But that city skylines huge recommend. So, I'm gonna so spend before you go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry, no, no, no. Before you move past this, um, how how long is it going to be before this is the new training module? Like once once uh, electronics and machines take over everything, is uh-huh. this going to be the new training for like city management? Like these are going to be the first step towards like managing the city. It's like you just got to go through this this training setup and uh, see if you can actually. <laughs> I will say that the game fails on a city management because the decisions you make are not you can re- it gave it gives you plenty of time to rectify them. I okay. will say that this is a perfect game for understanding how traffic works and understanding okay. where zoning and how you build interstates and uh, road systems and how congestion happens. So I've been driving around going like, oh, my God, I understand why they've decided to do this section like this. And, and, and it's it's really interesting. I think if this game would be the start for if you're training someone on mun- municipal planning for, for traffic management. And I know that sounds super exciting, but uh, I, I do I do say that it's like such an interesting challenge, and you're constantly uh, it's like Minecraft too. It's very creative, like because mm-hmm. I built this entire city that was a circle, and my idea was that it would have one giant one way highway that went around the circle, and then the the other circle spun the uh, counterclockwise. Okay. It didn't work. I don't know what I broke, but the town failed almost immediately. Uh, so I'm trying to like come up with innovative solutions for traffic, and uh, well, we'll see how it works out. But I'll, I'll, city I'll... of Orlando, uh, 
reach out to this guy. You have terrible traffic oh my god right now yeah well you know but in this game it's so because you can demolish an entire city block and then build a highway through you know and it gets more the more tra- like if you set up a train system in a bus route and uh dude i'm telling you, you can uh, this is all vanilla i don't have any of the dlc but i can i can do a metro a bus line a uh, uh cars obviously highway systems toll roads okay i can organize all that and and, and a train above ground train and it just becomes like even though i can demolish everything it's like but if i delete this train line then i can't get the cargo out of my city and i don't know it's all those problem solving things that are really fun uh, that's me. awesome man yeah it's it's super cool i think you would like it you're an analytical person but it's it's super addicting um cool i also saw real briefly i saw the new netflix movie extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile starring zach efron uh, and this uh, made its way on the indie film circuit to be released for Sundance so, or uh, for, to release on Netflix. And a lot of people already saw it and I heard her early critical reviews, and they're all pretty much right. Um, do you know much about Ted Bundy? Have you seen this movie? What is your experience with Ted Bundy? I haven't. I've heard a lot of talk about I had a friend who had actually watched this this weekend and told me about it, said it was interesting. I know the uh, Netflix also released the all the footage of Bundy's interviews uh, in the last few months as well, right? Um, I, I really don't know too much about this one in particular outside of, it sounds like both of these things kind of don't focus on the atrocities that he committed as much as, uh, as much as they do on his personality and people's perceptions of him. Is that, is that true? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's, that's weird, isn't it? It, the movie makes an interesting line and I think most of it's problematic because it's a real thing. And I think it's weird to make, I think Mindhunter did it really good. Mm-hmm. because it's more from the perspective of the people chasing him down and the people really are dark and twisted and it's a normal man trying to understand abnormal behavior. What this movie's doing, I don't I just already have a subversion to a real life serial killer story. Like cuz it's I I don't know if it supports like like I don't I don't like to glorify any of that behavior. I don't I don't think that's a good thing to do. I think right. less serial killers is a better future for us all right so to glorify them is interesting uh but this movie rides a really fine line and i think the movie ultimately would be a better success if it wasn't about ted bundy and it was just influenced by that story and and about something different because i didn't know anything about ted bundy which i think is the best mindset to to have and it focuses on the relationship he has with his girlfriend and the movie uh, i'm going to do minor spoilers for this but it's based on real life events so whatever if you don't want to be spoiled skip ahead like five ten minutes and uh, we'll be done with this conversation uh but it it follows him from the perspective that he – that he, the movie doesn't actually reveal that he's done anything wrong. It, it starts to become very more circumstantial and drop you hints uh, towards, towards uh, the end. Uh, and then it's got this giant reveal at the end that you know, he admits to his girlfriend in, in so many words that he's done all these things. And it's really powerful, but the entire movie, you're like, I know he did it, but the filmmakers are doing a very good job of, like, they're trying to make you really like him. And then it, and then it twists at the end uh, to, to be really dark and vile. And I just don't think that works mm. as well because it's a real person, and we already know that he did these things. And the movie's trying so hard to be, like, very vague about him actually doing them. You know, it's just kind of, like, circumstantial. The movie wants you to be on his side. And it's kind of, like, from her perspective, she's still, like, trusting him and trying to which didn't actually happen uh, but the movie dramatizes her like not even knowing up until like the end uh, if he did these things because the entire time he's telling her he did so i don't think it works be- just because of the real life implications but i think the movie's competent and it just it's uncomfortable when you're like 
halfway through the movie and you're like, I kind of like this guy, but it's Ted Bundy. So it's yeah. fucked up. Like, I don't know if the movie's good at doing that, but I think it would have been, I don't know if it would have got as many eyeballs, but ultimately I think all you have to do is change his name and, you know, buy the rights. And maybe it's like under the sheet, under the sheets, you're like, oh, it's based on Ted Bundy. But I think it would work better if it just helped, like got rid of the whole real life thing and just kind of was influenced by it. Yeah, see, we're in such interesting times because I feel like there's such a huge market for true crime, and it's it's seeped into the mainstream in such an interesting way. I think Netflix, it seems like they're just leaning into uh, sympathizing with Bundy now. That's because a ro- well, that's because a robot tells <laughs> tells Netflix what shows to make. <laughs> okay, so the AI overlord is trying to get us to sympathize with psychopaths. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And I, I again, I think Mindhunters was in, in, insanely great at doing this. And I like true crime right, stuff, but I you're agree. right. Like my girlfriend, we just watched. We just binged an entire series on Casey Anthony. I was doing stuff in the background, but I was watching this thing on Casey Anthony. And, uh, yeah, I get the allure of it, um, but it is that kind of spectacle. I remember growing up during that case, right? I was, you know, I was about to go to college. And, you know, true crime, you, since they started televising, you know, trials, it's just become such a spectacle. And I, I, I don't think it's particularly healthy, but um, I get people's interest in it. I mean, there are definitely a lot sure. of interesting stories, and, you know, it's— I think it's because it's so close to reality. It's mm-hmm. kind of like reality TV before reality TV. It's this idea of like, oh, it actually happened, so it raises the stakes, and it's with normal people that aren't movie stars, right? And so the believability is all there because it actually happened. Um, so I think that's part of the appeal. No, I definitely get that. And I think there's – it's just a, it's a very strange type of escapism, right? Because it's the kind of thing where most people would never come face-to-face with this kind of thing. And maybe – just accepting it's like okay my problems are so small compared to this atrocity that that this person committed but i don't know well, i think a lot of i can't say can... i'm not uh i can't say i'm immune from from the pool i, I definitely mm-hmm. listen to some of these things as well Oh, there's a lot of really like really engaging content with really good like reporting and it's just written really oh, yeah. well it's the uh yeah it's the whole sensationalization of of it all and it, i think people to to a good extent go like well i'm not that fucked up so it makes me feel better because I'm not a terrible person. Such a low bar, though. Yeah, it's like, it's dang. A, I don't know why you'd compare yourself to Casey Anthony. That's a terrible idea. No, uh, but it's that's what you do in, with media, right? It's like you always compare yourself to the characters on screen. I but just, I just remember like the cancerous like Nancy Graces of the world, which just fear monger. I remember like my mom was terrified of everything. She's terrified of like letting me go to the park just because it's like there are people out there that want to rape and murder your kid. <laughs> and it's like it's a very low percentage of the population. We're just blowing up these stories, mm-hmm. um, and it's a relatively safe world, uh, you know, country, you know, all things considered. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, not without its danger, but when it's just sensational, it was you're just feeding that into yourself. I think it, it it's a lot of paranoia and like lock the doors. Make sure you always lock the doors and be scared of everybody. <laughs> so yeah. I don't like that. That's a, that's a far tangent. Uh, so that is <laughs> extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile, which is a line said by John Malkovich, who is the judge, who has a small part. He is the shining light of this entire. He is incredible. I think uh, Zach Efron does an amazing job. All thing uh, you know with 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 the material he has, but uh, I'll say it just like uh, John Malkovich: says, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, <laughs> and vile. Well, that is my best John Malkovich impression. But uh, Not bad. yeah, it, it's worth watching the movie just to hear him read the title. And that's available on Netflix. You can watch that now. Uh, all right. So we're going to go into our weekly poll. You know, I need some theme music for our poll. I really need to come up with that. That's, I'm going to put that on the 
the, the wish list. It's on the docket. Poll list. I need uh, any ideas. If any ideas, send it to popholicscast.gmail.com. You can vote for our polls on Facebook. And this week's poll was about uh, Avengers. Last week, we did Endgame. We talked about uh, our spoiler-rific uh, overview and plot. Uh, we ran through the entire plot of Endgame. That's right, the entire plot. We were at about three hours. We were beat for beat with the movie. If you want to hear our thoughts and our breakdown of that movie, go check out last week's episode. But we asked our listeners, what do you think is better, Avengers Infinity War or Avengers Endgame? And, you know, we just got a vote. There was just a vote in, actually. We were, we were just at 24 votes. Oh, that was you? That, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> a little late to the game. <laughs> trying, to, trying to even out the scales, trying to make it perfectly balanced. Uh, we As got, all things should be. Uh, 60% Avengers Endgame taking the lead over 40% Infinity War. And I'm not, I don't think this is wrong. I don't, I don't think it's, it was almost, I think it should have been 50-50 just for the symmetry and the whole Thanos snapping of everything. Right. Um, what do you think about this result? You know, I actually saw this movie a second time this weekend. And I think as far as standalone movies, I have to say Infinity War works better for me. Really? At this point. I got to come back to it. Um, just, yeah, I think it. I think it may depend less on the the prior movies than this one does, just with how fan servicey it is. Right. But Endgame was just magnificent for me, so it's like I, I love both of them. It's it's really hard to choose, but I I definitely understand why people would would choose Endgame. With it's it's so fresh in their minds. It gives for me personally everything I was looking for in the finale. So mm-hmm. I think this is a solid choice. Yeah, I always thought Endgame or uh, Infinity War, excuse me, was a little messy, and I've always thought that. And I rewatched okay. it in comparison to Endgame, and I think they work really good as a as a as, as a as a double feature, as a okay a combined piece. Um, but I think Infinity War for me is just it has more pacing issues and it's a little messy, and I really don't like the the random dogs at the end that are just like fodder for action. It's just kind of like filling action time. Um, it feels a little unnecessary, whereas Endgame gets you right in the feels, and I think That's is fair. really way more character focused, and uh, I enjoy it a hell of a lot more. I'd say I'd say I put it pretty far above Infinity War for myself. You guys always you, you, you turn me every time I, I make a vote. It's like yeah, I, I probably I'll probably <laughs> won Infinity or Endgame at the end of this, but whatever. Brian, it makes sense. You're a DC defender, so we know that you are contrarian. <laughs> you have poor heart. taste in movies. No, you're a contrarian <laughs> at heart. You want to elevate things that may be getting beat down on. That's that's that, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, we have in our poll out this week, guys. Go check it out on Facebook. Please follow us there. Follow us on Instagram, all the social medias, Twitter. Um, but we are going to take a short break. When we get back. We're going to dive into this week's episode, which is a retrospective on 2004's Primer. We'll be right back on Pop. Welcome back to Popaholics, show about hot takes, out in pancakes, we're diving deep, deep divers. Scuba Squad. Great break. Great break. What a great break. Guys, this month, uh, guys, guys, there's no one with us. It's just me and you. <laughs> Brian. Brian. I'm just going to address you. Brian. Uh, this week, this month is all about time travel. We're gonna be talking about the classics, okay? And I wanted to, I wanted to pick, I wanted Chris to watch the opposite of whatever Endgame was, right? Mm. I wanted to pick just a low budget indie flick that's deep cult classic, and force him to watch it. And then he's like, "I'm going on a cruise for a week," and then left. And uh, I still am forcing him to watch it, and give us his thoughts when he gets back. That movie, guys, is 2004's Primer.
here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read this, and you're going to listen. You're going to stay on the line, and you're not going to interrupt. You're not going to speak for any reason. Some of this you know. I'm going to start at the top of the page. Meticulous. Yes. Methodical. Educated. They were these things. Nothing extreme. Like anyone, they varied. There were days of mistakes, laziness, and infighting. And there were days, good days, when by anyone's judgment, they would have to be considered clever. No one would say that what they were doing was complicated. It wouldn't even be considered new, except for maybe in the geological sense. They took from their surroundings. That is a clip from the 2004 indie flick Primer. It's not the trailer, because the trailer, as it turns out, doesn't have any words in it. So I figured I'd play the opening phone call that we hear. Uh, Primer (laughs) is four friends, fledging entrepreneurs, knowing that there is something bigger and more innovative than the different error-checking devices they've built, wrestle over their new invention, which is a very vague plot synopsis. And this movie won a couple of Sundance awards, uh, and... uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the, the the interesting mechanics. I think this does time travel in a very interesting way, a very logical way. I'm a big fan of logical consistency. Uh, it talks a lot about how we invent things and what the responsibility of making those inventions and what you use them for. Uh, we're going to try to figure out what the hell this movie actually is as far as plot-wise, uh, and we're going to share our opinions. Brian, how's that sound? I am going to try and describe this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, it's not an you, easy one. Have you seen Primer before? I had, yes. I, I saw this movie for the first time in college, um, and I don't think I had watched it since then. So I think this was my second viewing of it when I watched it this weekend. Yeah, and you can watch it. I believe this movie's free on YouTube. I think it's uh, it's been— What? I totally paid to rent this movie, son of a gun. <laughs> I, I bought it, and I'm glad I did. Um, this movie was written, directed, and stars Shane, uh, I believe it's Kareth. Um, and he was a uh, interesting story behind this. He was a software engineer, and he was writing screenplays in his, his free time. And he's like, hey, I can put together a movie. And he shot it on 16 millimeter. And uh, he ba- they basically, when they made this, it was a ragtag crew. His mom catered. Huh. And... And they only did, like, one take, as long as they didn't mess up the words, because they just had to save all the film they could. And uh, it shows. It's very evident when you watch this movie. But I, you know, I love this style of movie. This this harkens back to one of my favorite movies, which is Brick. And it's got this real, it's like why I love indie filmmaking, uh, which is is this, having to put together something with such restrictions, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, it creates a lot of innovation in how you're telling the story. That that makes it really, really special. Now, this movie is, I don't think, as well put together as Brick. Brick is just jaw-dropping for a first-time director. This is a little better than, you know, th- this is really good for what he's given. It's not on that level, but it's definitely worth a watch. And we're going to be spoiling major plot points of this, if you can call it that, which I would say you probably need to watch a guide to even understand what happens, especially in the last third. Uh, but one of the most interesting things about this movie is the mechanics of its time travel. Brian, upon rewatching it, did you pick up on the interesting way they do time travel? How did, how did the movie convey that to you, and did it do a good job of doing that? This is the kind of movie that 
This time I watched it with subtitles, so that definitely helps, Mm -hmm. but I think it goes out of its way to not let you figure out what's going on until that last third, and then by that point, I start trying to put together stuff from the first third, and everything just gets crazy. Um, I think, generally, I I conceptually understood the plot, um, but it gets to a point where you never know when you are if that makes any sense to, to the listeners. Uh, you, you see things, and I, I, I just I don't even know how to talk about it. Yeah, it's, um, it's a heavy one. And I was the, the last third, it gets wild, and things break down. And I had to look at the Wikipedia to figure out how the time travel functionally works, because I still think the movie doesn't really tell you exactly the implications uh, fully. There's some visual cues that hint at things about doubles, and uh, what functionally is happening while you are time traveling. But conceptually, uh, I really like some, I, I don't even know what it, where to go here. You, you got to help me out with the, the functions of the time travel. Well, what's really interesting is that they accidentally, so the story is it's a bunch of engineers that are making like computer chips for hackers and stuff, and they're trying to invent right. something, and they try to make a, a device that I believe exists in reality that is basically a device that makes things lighter. Like That's the original conceit, and they accidentally invent a time machine, and they find this out by putting it in, and an algae grows at a substantially faster rate than mm-hmm. they're used to. They find it out. And what they find, and this is, there's a couple crucial scenes that if you're not paying attention, you definitely will kind of miss, because they, they, before you even know that he's talking about time travel, he's talking about time travel, but he doesn't want he doesn't like say it outright. But it's basically that once you go into the box, uh, it creates a loop in which if you turn on the machine for ten minutes, uh, it will eventually loop back that you know into back into time ten minutes, and it always it kind of always is present physically. And if you're within the con- t- uh, con- confinements of the box, you will be where you were. You know, ten minutes ago, if you do the math correctly, you know it's it's a formula that they have that's consistent. But essentially, they build a bigger version of that, and so they start the box. And when they start the box, if you started the box and got into it right, and you waited like three days, you could get out of the box at any point, depending on how long you waited since the box was turned on. So essentially, it's not a time machine. What's interesting about it is not a time machine that you can get in. And, like, go back to when dinosaurs existed. You can only go back to where the box, the machine started. Right, okay. Which is really cool. And so it creates a starting point for the time travel. And what's really interesting is that instead of immediately going into the how how does this start creating paradoxes, they start the movie with intelligently – trying to game the system so that they aren't doing that, right? So that they're separating themselves in their hotel and they're basically never going to be in the same line of sight as their doubles and they're mm-hmm. going to try to not affect the world at all. So they realize they can they can travel back a day using the box or however long they want to wait and then they don't affect the real world uh, as much as possible until it unwinds and becomes out of out of hand. And the turn of the movie is that they create. They also one of the designers also created a failsafe machine that started before they started doing it, so that he could go back to the very beginning and stop them from trying any of this to stop any of the weird things that would happen. 
But then you find out that he, the other guy knew about the failsafe and went back before that. And the movie just starts becoming really confusing, like I think it would be if you had the ability to do this and people started meddling with this. And introduces a character that they never explain how he got the ability to do it. And it Not just throws a wrench into <laughs> everything. Boxception. Uh, but, I mean, how do you compare the way that this handles it versus something like Back to the Future or Terminator as far as the time travel mechanics? Well, I definitely, I definitely appreciate it not walking you through everything, and I think that is some something that's really strong for the movie is how you get caught up in their anxieties in such a real way, mm-hmm. and just it's a movie that nearly demands rewatch. And I didn't get to watch it two times this time, but thinking back on the first scene, like when we first meet the character, um, well, when we first meet, uh, it's Abe and Aaron, is it? Abe, yeah, and, Abe Aaron. and Aaron. Yeah, so Abe. Aaron yeah, played on by screen. the director, Shane, and then Abe played by David Sullivan. Right, so in, in the timeline of the story as we're seeing it, Abe is the first one to figure this out, and Aaron has, uh, is quote-unquote unaware. But when we first see him uh, get this explained to him, he's got this earpiece in that we later realize is him having already gone back and replayed this God knows how many times. So... I think I appreciate it because it does uh, – it touches on the paradoxes and shows the probabilistic nature of all of this mm-hmm. and how it's not all set in stone uh, very well. So I feel like I'm just hopping to the end of the movie. I don't know how else to do it here. But it's all about the causality of your actions. So like you, like you hinted at, the first time they do it, they seclude themselves in a completely different city to where they're going to be completely out of touch with everyone they know not watching any news events, so on and so forth. And the first thing they try and do is make stock moves, which um, <laughs> reading, reading a bit about this, it's, it's interesting how it's not really concerned with the ethics of time travel at all. It's yeah. more of just like rogue scientists who are going off on their own. And I kind of I appreciate this kind of um, this cynical, you know, nine to five scientist who really does his passionate work outside of his job right even to the point of um questionable legality right i think he uh (laughs) thinks about stealing stuff from his from his work at some point to to help build this machine but um i like how hard sci-fi it is even though i'm not sure if the uh, the uh machine that they originally built that can decrease perceived um perceived mass Mm -hmm. it actually exists but the fact that they turned that into uh, time travel is really interesting to me. I was actually talking to my my new roommate, who's a friend from high school, recently about this, about how um, modern physics still doesn't know with certainty uh, the fundamental function. Um, function's not the right word. The driver of gravitational forces right. in terms of what um, gra- a graviton is one of the theoretical particles that they have math to explain. But we really don't know um, we just fundamentally. Know that they, we just do know that mass attracts mass. We don't know what's propelling that right and due to einstein's equations equations we know that the bending of space time is what creates um the distribution of forces and and the feel of gravity but mm-hmm. um i i love this idea of an- nearly anti-grav tech leading to time travel and how both those things kind of get to the fundamental nature of reality and right. i think that's something that something like back to the future uh Spoilers for Endgame here, you know, it's it seems to oversimplify things and not deal with the paradoxes in a way that realistically, scientifically, time travel would have to have to deal with. 
Um, so I appreciate it from that level for sure. Like you said, the there's a character who gets brought in who it never explains it, and we get like tangential words from characters about like, oh, this event happened, and it seems like the characters weren't even there the first time. So right. I think there might be a little bit of uh, plot hole may not be the right word for it, but inconsistencies in mm-hmm. what they are aware of within their own timeline. But the fact that it seems like they essentially are killing off doubles all the time is something that really is interesting to me and kind of um, almost reminds me of, uh, I'm I'm not going to spoil another movie actually because it's kind of (laughs) a a major plot point, but I think in terms of realistically portraying time travel on screen, this is probably as close as you can get to it in terms of what we know about things as they are today. Yeah, I think that's what really drew me to it when I was younger. And I think I I will admit, uh, and I think, for what resources they have, I want to say that I really, you know, skip into my opinions a little bit. I really respect this movie and what it's doing. I will say that when I was younger, I watched this movie going like, oh my God, you know, they're not telling the audience you have to figure it out. You mm-hmm. know, it's, oh, it's cutting edge filmmaking and watching it. The, I watched it twice in preparation for this. And the more I'm like, no, I think that it's just not great filmmaking once they're trying to explain the very end and it's kind of leaning into the, paranoia and the discombobulation of what the act of using the machine is to them and that's a choice but it also becomes very confusing to know what's going on right uh you know and it makes it makes a relative amount of sense but it's still debatable what actually happens which is you know our artistic choice or what i think which is maybe he didn't shoot as much as he wanted to and, and and was limited by that and just made it work with with what he had but yeah, the last third definitely feels like that could be the case. I, I could see that because of the you know because of the narration, which I think is really cool, and a really cool thing is just to read that phone call all the way through. Uh, it's it's actually a really interesting um, through line throughout the entire thing, and it kind of helps you comprehend it because essentially the phone call uh, there's a phone call that's being placed periodically through the movie that comes in a, a voiceover narration. Uh, but it's essentially Aaron, um, one of the main characters, calling his uh, one of his other doubles, and he's telling him what happened. Uh, okay. And and you know that's never explicit, but you know it, it's it's what the director has gone on record in saying. And there's actually uh, on YouTube as well. There's a commentary track, and you can listen to that as well. And most of it is him just like taking a dump on his entire movie he's just kind of like <laughs> yeah we had uh, this camera shot looks pretty bad and he's like yeah i edited all this and i couldn't really get it we had to adr all the voices and um it, it's kind of funny too because i noticed this the first time through that in the earlier scenes i'm like man there's a lot of adr in this movie that i didn't realize which is where you redub the vo- voices over and okay. it happens a lot less and when he was doing the commentary he's like yeah i learned how to do the audio better on set as we were shooting so we had to do it a lot less wow, uh, because okay. he's a first-time filmmaker you know and, and he was learning it as he was going along and uh i think the style i think it's very styled well yeah um which 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 leads to a lot of the themes they're going for and this kind of uh, leads us into what you were saying earlier. I want to talk about, you know, they're inventing it and, and they're going for small time games, but they're really, you know, the narration, one of my favorite parts is talking about, hey, we found the technology, but we really didn't know what it was good for or what to do with it. And we were thinking about selling it, but we didn't want anybody to do something bad with it. And we were thinking about how we would market it. And we're like, well, what's the use case scenario for it? And what does it mean for the world? 
And I think that's – I really watch this, you know, and there's a lot of parallels with startups. You know, they're doing this out of their garage. They're a bunch of yeah. young computer engineers uh, and mechanical engineers and stuff. And it, I really like the idea of all these guys having to deal with what they've done and how they're going to use it and how they start off going, hey, the Google thing, don't be evil. You know, we're not – we're going to use this and we're going to make moderate gains to see if the system works and to see if we're really doing this. And we're going to do some like – we're going to just dip our toes into the is it working and can we get away with not creating paradoxes? And also we'll get a little gain from it. Uh, and it, can we do this ethically? And it turns out, no, you can't. Uh, and it's kind of this uh, – it's kind of like a statement on technology and how it's outside of the creator's control and what control does an inventor have. Did you notice any of that the, when you were watching it this time around? So in, in terms of the ethics – in terms of how it's an – like I really saw it as a parallel with, uh, with – startups. In, yeah, with startups and inventors making something. Uh, oh, for sure. And how that parallels with things like Google and ad tracking and, and pr- privacy and, and Facebook and the same kind of thing of like – Right. Y- you know, you created this – and cell phones. You know, you, we created this thing and now we're, we need to learn how to sell it but we're afraid – like as an inventor, what is your responsibility as the inventor, as the – as the maker of a technology, of a thing that's going to change people, what is your responsibility to the ethics of it all? Right, yeah. So definitely, I, I really appreciated where they started off the movie. I thought um, the relationship between the four friends who eventually splits off into the two friends who hide this invention from them, but their discussions about marketability feel so real, especially within an engineering context, you know, speaking yeah. to that Silicon Valley mindset. It's you can have the best product in the world. If you don't know how to sell it, no one's going to want to buy it from you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it seems simple. But with something as um, reality altering as time travel, it's almost the thing where <laughs> – Either you use it for yourself or you change the entire world, right. and that almost seems more dangerous than <laughs> just using it uh, using it yourself. And this – it's an interesting thing which I think in a longer movie or maybe in a sequel or something could, could have been touched on a bit more. There's – one of my favorite lines from it that I wrote down here was – uh, what's worse, thinking you're being paranoid or knowing you should be? Right, and right. If, if they – I think if they had dived into that a little more and maybe the character of the father – who ends up following them at some point and who never gets explained could be more on that side of things. But I think this type of thing would fundamentally alter society as we know it, right? And right. isn't the type of thing that you would expect large corporations to just put out like, hey, who wants to rig the star- stock market in your favor, essentially? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it would, yeah, yeah. It would, this is a discussion we've had off mic uh, when I was in Orlando recently, actually, about the uh, – the fundamental possibilities of this and how so much of our society is based off of these concepts of stability that something like this would completely throw out the window. So I, I appreciate uh, them showing this and uh, I, I think they don't really, it doesn't seem to me that they really consider the ethics of it all too much. I think the marketability is one thing they try and they try and get it, but then they, can't sell it to anyone. I know they have multiple meetings that um, we don't really see on screen. Right. Um, There's a lot of that. A lot of that yeah. not on screen happening. It's happening. To be fair, I, that's something I like about the movie. I think right. it's watching this movie makes me feel it's like we used to, you know, make uh, make short movies together growing up, largely based on on your direction. But um, this is the type of movie where the writing, I think, is largely really good. It feels natural. The right. acting is more than sufficient for me, and 
the shots are something I noticed. It it kind of degrades as we go. Degrades isn't isn't what I mean, but it gets a little more experimental as right. the the plot gets a little crazier. But I noticed a lot of like semi simple stable shots and um, like tracking shots uh, over windows and stuff like that. And I love how the set design. I'm getting completely off no, thematic no, thematic train here, but um, it seems like you know you and I could make this movie if we shot we could have one thing at your house one thing at my house and rent a hotel for a few days and we can right. make this movie essentially and i just love that about it and yeah. i think it doesn't ever feel like oh the set's boring or anything and that speaks to the the length of the movie but also the snappiness and the, the pace of it which i think works really well in terms of the ethical questions outside of individually and how they debate about profiting off of it I think it's lacking a little bit in terms of the overarching bigger questions that are associated with time travel or could yeah, be. Yeah, maybe I was putting a little bit of myself into it and, and kind of the, the world that I work in and uh, kind of what I was seeing. I mean, it was the garage imagery was just so strong to me because uh, that's where, you know, all tech startups are uh, when mm-hmm. they, you know, I, and so so I think that's where my mindset was this time around. And it was really interesting because I haven't seen this movie in 10 years. It really has been that long. I saw it wow. shortly after it made its rounds at Sundance and, and came onto DVD because I, I was really in that scene and I really wanted to watch it. And I remember watching it a couple times, but I have I have not honestly picked it up in ten years. And so I, I remember I like I feel like I've, this is a different movie this time around for me. And yeah, it really stuck out to me a lot because of uh, there's that guy they're bringing around that they're trying to sell it to, and he's the guy who eventually gets it. And their relationship breaks down because of trust. And I like that this movie is about two friends. Yeah, the Granger character. That I believe that's his girlfriend's father. Right. Who so is he like does an buy it from them? I don't know. We don't know. I don't know if he that he would explain to him being in it. Okay. okay. Yeah. In another, they don't explain this at all. But one of the character they find when things really start going off the rails, they find a character wandering around who has used the machine that they're not aware that anyone has told them about the machine. They've kept it between them two. Yeah. But what you find out later is that, like I mentioned before, even though Abe created the failsafe, Aaron found the failsafe before, a- before Abe tried to use it. So so Aaron was was actually his double for a lot of the movie in the timeline that they're doing. But they where it really starts to fall apart is they find a character. And I, I believe that at one point, I mean, the way I was looking at it was like mm-hmm. in one timeline – they tried to sell it to him or something, and he got one because they real he he uh, Abe makes a revela- or Aaron makes a revelation a revelation that you can take down the box and take it into another box and take it with you into that timeline, which right. means that these machines now are within the hands of these these looper people, uh, these doubles, and that just that just means that it's just chaos, like it's just like a virus of 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 chain reaction of of potentialities. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and really it degraded because of trust because, you know, they had an idea, they were trying to figure out how they were going to use it and they decided they were going to use it initially for personal gain. And our two main characters kind of lie to each other. Aaron, Abe doesn't tell Aaron about the failsafe and Aaron finds out about the failsafe and doesn't tell Abe that he's used it. And so this idea that within a, a, a business, uh, and especially when it's related to technology, right. that the ethics of it get blurred and problems start to arise when the two founders of this uh, ha- have not been honest with each other and kind of use it in, in, in like Aaron wants to use it to right a wrong. Like he wants to go back and save this girl from getting threatened with a shotgun. 
because they talk about this party scene that doesn't happen. It happens the way that they change it. We never see it play out the way that it actually played out. They weren't even there when it happened. Mm-hmm. And they say, we're going to go back and actually stop that from happening. Uh, and they do eventually after enough times. And we see that version of it where they've actually stopped it. But it's let them like, oh, we'll try to use it for good. But when they're trying to do that, they've created so many doubles and paradoxes and all that, that it just begins to unravel. Um, and it all has to do fundamentally with them not trusting each other and, and, and not doing things together. Um, I don't know how yeah. parallels, you know, I don't know. And I, I just saw that as like a cool theme for like, uh, you know, running a company or doing a project together and, and, and needing to have open dialogue and not have secrets from each other. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's something, um, I always compare it to something like the shining or something, but I really love using either supernatural or sci-fi ideas to really just talk about a relationship drama. You right. know, I think, I think it works really well and you can tell that they already within their group of four, those two have a relationship that the other two don't They're They're already hiding things. So it's, from the beginning, based on a distrust of these two guys, like, oh, they're not going to be about it. They're interested in other things, so on and so forth. And like you said, it's um, Abe and Aaron kind of have different perspectives on this thing, which is at the end of the movie becomes clear when Aaron leaves the country because he wants to fundamentally change reality or do much bigger things and continue experimenting with this with this causality potential, which is terrifying and like I think <laughs> yeah. the last scene works so well where it's just like what the hell is he gonna do with this giant ass time machine um but yeah uh I just the relationship drama works really well for me and I think that the there's also a moment where he talks about like oh I figure anything I tell you you're gonna tell your wife you know kind mm-hmm. of thing and so yep. there's like and then it's her father who gets involved so it could be that could be the link as well Mm-hmm. You know, if, if if she told him about something and he started digging around the U-Haul. Is this a, is this a U-Haul ad? It it was he brilliant got, use so of this watching, storage facility. But. From watching the commentary, he had to email corporate and yeah. go through a lot of legal stuff to shoot there. Okay. But he had – the way that he wrote it was essentially – he was writing um, from an interview that I watched, and I'll try to link it in the show notes, uh, is that he was writing like a romantic drama thing, kind of coming-of-age angsty thing because the guy's like in his mid-20s and stuff. And that, that's what you write as a – angsty you know 20 some odd man when you're like i'm gonna be a screenwriter let me talk about my my love life (laughs) and uh i think this idea came to be and what the way he wanted to write it was that he's he would only use locations that were immediately around him and so he would write so he came up with a sci-fi story and he was like i'm only gonna write it for all the things that i know i can shoot at and that u-haul was one of them and and he got permission i believe that he got permission for most of the places he shot i think the gas station scene they wouldn't let him film at the gas station so they set up the cameras across the street and filmed it. And I think that's like the most fun thing about this movie is, is once you dive, you can dive into the timeline, which we're going to try to kind of briefly go over uh, what's actually happening in the plot of this movie. Right. Um, but really the fun, not, once you're past that and trying to see what people's opinions are on that, uh, really dive it into how they duct tape this movie together <laughs> is really inspiring. And it's like that, that sort of plucky attitude that, you know, I watched a lot of this and I was, I was of two minds going, you know, would this movie be better served if it had a budget, if it maybe had some A-list actors, if it had uh, better uh, cinema, uh, cinematography, if it had uh, more locations? And it's kind of like, I don't know. Like, the, there's parts of it, yes. I think that a lot of it would have worked better um, if, there was, if there was something a little more flashy. But also kind of the, mon- the mundaneness of it all is kind of what makes it really interesting. 
You know, no, it's I, the most... I agree with that. Yeah, completely. I think like the color palette of this movie, it's got these sepia. It's not sepia tone, but kind of almost like the Matrix in that yeah. greenish hue to everything. There's a lot and of blue I... lights. A lot of blue mm-hmm. in, whenever they have to light anything. Okay, yeah. So they're using actual blue lights. I, you know, you're you're plugged in on this stuff in a way that well, I, they only I'm not used, at all. Uh, so they had to shoot it on Super 16, and they had to zoom in for everything to make it look like 35. And uh, okay. they, yeah, a lot of this I learned in the director's commentary, which you can watch. And they. He, they only had like a set of three like stage lights almost, and when they're in like the um, storage facility, you know, there's no lights in that thing, so they had to they just used those lights, which gives it like this really blue look. So a lot oh, of the wow, nighttime okay. shots are that, and then a lot of the outside shots are just like sunlight and maybe a little bit of lighting, and then they they co- color corrected it to give it this blown out look, this overexposed look. That's why whenever they go outside, it's like all bright. Whenever the, the windows. It's like somehow soap operate operate without being because of the 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 style of film they use with mm-hmm. uh, sixteen, it doesn't uh, it doesn't look uh, smooth like a soap opera does, but it's almost lit kind of like like the, all the windows are overblown with light, um, yeah. and it kind of gives this like cerebral kind of feel to it, which is unique. Which is like yeah. well, they would have done that if they could have shot it better. <laughs> like yeah, I, I feel like they probably wouldn't have right, and just the practicality of the shots and everything. I think it serves this movie well. I, I'm not sure it would have worked. I think they may have tried to do too much. And for example, we never see a scene of functionally what happens when they're inside the box because essentially you're just sitting there. I yeah. feel like in, in a bigger budget movie, they'd have a CG scene where you see some type of time dilation happening and try to yeah. put that on screen in a way that this doesn't serve the plot at all. You know, So stuff like that, I appreciate it because it still works without anything flashy at all. It's like they're literally – it's like I'm pretty sure I've stayed in a hotel room that, exactly like the one they stayed <laughs> yeah. in. It's just like this is, well, this no, is just the, a the couple box, of guys. The big version of the box that they use inside the storage facility is literally right. like PVC pipe and duct tape. Yeah, and they're just like putting yeah, – put we got to cover the leaks. There's always leaks. It's like what the hell's leaking out of this thing? <laughs> yeah, the, the director, uh, Shane Carruth, uh, said that – they had put the thing around it to say stop for leaks, but he's like, that was the worst prop that I think has ever been ex- uh, been invented. He said that at the end of the day, that was the only thing, the, the wrap around it. He was like, that's the only thing that held that together. And if you watch the movie really close, you can see it's <laughs> super uneven and unstable because it's just like glued together PVC pipe. He said yeah. when they took it, uh, when they finished shooting, they put it in the back of a truck and it literally just fell apart and they had to throw it away. <laughs> it's, wow. But yeah, it gives it this really DIY look, and right. uh, it feels, and I think it adds a level of because the nature of the time travel isn't we're going to get in this pod, and then a beam of light is going to shoot the pod into, like you were saying, a time dilated vortex. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like no, we're just going to sit in this room, and what's happening is that it's just manipulating, like it's just like a feedback loop, and we're just going to loop back into time because we're creating a distorted reality, and it's very mundane, and we just have to be kind of asleep with oxygen takes like it makes it it makes it feel a little more grounded in the real world see okay and this is something i forgot about because it it's not only talking about gravity it's also talking about um the potential for limitless energy right these loops that are self-sustaining on some level right which is the scene where they take the battery out they're like it runs for a little bit after it's not even powered by the battery because it's a continuous feedback loop or whatever the way that oh that the way that scene is shot is so perfect. I think we see him unscrewing it, and then we see him kick it, and then they fall, they fly out from under the table two times. Yeah. Just simple stuff like that is so profound, and it it explains what you're trying to get across so well without any flashy effects, just sound. Which 
I, I hope we'll get into the soundtrack because I, I actually really enjoyed the uh, the Foley work in the in the soundtrack, which I believe the director also did. He right? did it all. He did it, the it's, editing. He did the Foley. He did the uh, the soundtrack. It's this man, it, it really is incredible. It reminded me. I don't know if you got this at all, but um, the stuff that Atticus Ross and um, oh, the lead singer of Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, uh-huh. um, some of their scores, like this kind of ambient, ethereal, electronic music, you know? I thought it served the movie very well. It was, like, not overdone and just Well, one of, of the smart things he does, and again, he talks about it in the commentary, is he starts off with just basic piano. Mm-hmm. It's very grounded and very simple, and it's just, like, basic, uh, like, piano melodies and stuff. And okay. as the movie just starts to unwind, it becomes more ambient and ethereal. And it's kind of this unwinding. And, and, and he's really sm- – it was, like, really smart because it's a lot of small choices because that's all the choices you can make when you're making a movie for $5,000. I mean, the budget for this movie is probably, like – I want to say the budget for this movie is probably fifty dollars to $100,000. Like, not – I'd be surprised if it was smaller than that. And um, you notice that as the music's unwinding, you know, mm-hmm. they wear suit and ties, right? They wear, like, the dress shirts and, and ties. And as the movie keeps going, they're becoming more unbuttoned. They're losing the tie. They're looking more unhinged. They're getting dirtier. Uh, you know, and so it's these really simple decisions that are really – even though he's working with three different colors, right, so to speak, in painting this picture – He's using them all in tangent to, to make a very intelligible, understandable film for the most part. No, yeah, 100% agree. When you're not talking about the actual plot of the movie. So, Brian, I want you to tell me what happens in this movie. Give me a brief synopsis of, of what happens in this movie. Give me, like, the brief plot points. Oh, dear God. Um, okay, so we got a couple of friends who discovered time travel which is essentially a time loop um both of them begin using it one of them we we later realize has used it first it's it's a movie where the past seems to fluctuate on some level so we got a couple of friends who are using this thing they initially use it to bet on stocks and they don't tell anyone about it, and they're very careful about who they contact and who they don't contact when they're using the device. It gets a little fast and loose as as they continue using it. One, um, I think it's Aaron who brings his phone and takes a call from his girlfriend while his double is theoretically out there in the world. So they get a little um, willy-nilly with the potential causality issues and paradoxes that having a double out there can can cause. Inevitably, we they hear from their two friends who they've cut out of this who don't know about the time travel that um, – is it Abe or Aaron? It's Abe, Abe's girlfriend, right? That uh, is at Abe's the party. ex-girlfriend, right? Or no, okay. no, his girlfriend. Abe's girlfriend. Aaron lives yeah. with his wife. Abe has the girlfriend. That's right. So we find out that Abe's girlfriend was at this party that a guy brought a shotgun to and apparently had this traumatic experience. She wasn't shot. The shotgun wasn't shot. This is something that's a little weak for me. It's like if she was killed, yeah, maybe go back and, and save her. But to, to do all of this for – but I'm, I'm getting off topic here. So <laughs> well, maybe it strained their relationship. That's kind of okay. played, I think. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, and you watched it twice this time around. I, he's I didn't living pick at, that up this time. Because a- 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 Abe's not living with his girlfriend. He's living with Aaron. They are living together? Yeah, he lives in, the, he lives in like the guest room. Okay, okay. I clearly wasn't paying attention well enough to this movie. Um, <laughs> so 
we we find out that uh, Aaron has been trying to, for much longer than Abe is aware, trying to solve this problem and has come to terms with, in his understanding, he thinks, being able to recreate the same day over and over with minor fluctuations to try and put things how he would like them to be to uh, negate this party from happening. So functionally how he does this is he records all of his conversations um, at least one of the days. I'm not sure, sure if he's doing this every every day that he comes back, but he records everything, and there's this idea that if everything everyone says to him is the same and every, everything that he responds with is the same, that probabilistically everything falls in line and things will be as they are until he makes a conscious choice to change them. We get a great scene towards the end where he's on a basketball court and we can hear the recording and we see that uh, his friend on the basketball court responds differently. And this is actually Mm -hmm. the first time we see that scene, which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, It it worked really well to to show that he's been here before. He's got the, the earpiece in. And this guy throws off the those off the time loops they realize they've jumped rails and they're in a different causal uh lane at this point yeah and so now i'm getting i'm getting confused because after this is it after this that they run into the father when they're when they're driving they so i think he gets woken up by the kids beating on the cars that's right that's right and he's like hey we won't wake up and we could do this thing while we're asleep if we stop the kids from beating on the car, like he's like, oh, here's a perfect opportunity to fix something. It, again, this Fast is where it's, <laughs> this is when it's like, and I'm not sure how much this is intentional of like, and I, I I think it plays into what these characters are experiencing. So it is kind of like I I I hope that that's the intention, which is right. like you're not sure what day it is. Essentially, this whole adventure starts on let's say Monday, right? And you can watch a bunch of YouTube videos that explain the timeline. But essentially, they uh, Abe does his first, t- or Aaron does his first. He like invent. Don't at the beginning they invent it. He's like, I built the thing, and he goes there, and is he's using it, but he hasn't used it yet. But he's like, see, we're gonna use it, right? The, like the the retroactive causality has already uh, the effects of their future actions or their doubles future actions are already existing in their current situation from the beginning. Right, right, uh, and and as I say, because Aaron is has already been using the box uh, from the point that he's told about the box. We're right. in the causality where Aaron knows about the box. Anyway, but towards the end, you know, there's a cognitive dis- dis- dissonance between what day it actually is and where they've gone back to, mm-hmm. and what timeline we're in, and that's where it gets really muddy. But it, essentially, they keep knocking each other. They keep like. Putting the Abe has the the most, I think, or excuse me, Aaron does. I think three total times we know of that he's, uh, he he first poisons himself the first time he goes back to the failsafe. He puts himself to sleep uh, with the milk and the cereal and puts him in the attic. And so and that, and just just to be clear, that's his original self, right? That's he's the, the double. And Aaron's he's... Aaron zero. <laughs> okay, yes, <laughs> first Aaron. Uh, and then while he's doing that, his other – a third Aaron comes to, like, fight him and put him to sleep. But he kind of wins and tells him to fuck off. Yeah. And that second that second Aaron is the one that eventually, I think, goes to Venezuela or, or Asia or wherever he goes. Or France, wherever. The, I think the guy was speaking French. I can't remember. Yeah, I think it's France, yeah. 
Um, and that third double is the one that goes through the entire movie that we see. Uh, and that's why he's experiencing time travel and he's got the bad effects of getting the ear bleed early and all that stuff. Cause he's, he's been through like several, he's gone through the initial run. Then he did the fail safe and then he, you know, went through again to try to figure out how to manipulate it. So, you know, the Aaron we see by in the very beginning towards the end is, is one that's like constantly like falling apart. Yeah. Um, and then they basically decide to, there's only, I think two Abe's. And that Abe wants to watch over, they use the failsafe and make sure they don't invent it or use it. Yeah, he's just kind of stalking his his earlier self to make sure he doesn't get there to to cause the trouble that he knows inev- is inevitable from it. Uh, and then there's there's an Aaron that was just put to sleep that woke up. And then there's this movie in the in the attic. <laughs> Well, no, because he he got out. He gets out at the end. The attic opens up. Right, we see him exactly. So that's what you were saying was waking up, though. I'm just yeah, and he I'm just losing kinda, track of these. Uh, and he lives now. his life because bef- he ate cereal the morning before he learned that this box did this, mm-hmm. and so he knows nothing, which is why the second Aaron calls him to tell him everything that happened or whatever. I see, but that still leaves one Aaron in the in the movie's consistent timeline of where the film ends. Of, like, what's he doing? Because theoretically, isn't there... Unless that other Aaron went back to do something else. Because I think there's three Aarons. See, this is where it gets a little confusing. Because- there's Aaron in the attic. There's Aaron that uh, who wakes up and tries and doesn't know about time travel through the... And then there's the one who goes to France, right? Right. Or is, is the one who goes to France the one who is the in the second. attic? No, the one who goes to France is the second one. So that's the one we f- are largely following throughout the movie. No, I think we're following the third Aaron through the movie because second Aaron goes back for the first fail save and puts himself to sleep. And then this other Aaron shows up and is like, I've come back from the fail save because it's more fucked up than you can imagine. Because he, he says something about, <laughs> oh, he was more, uh, he obviously was more in it than I was. Like he was more determined than me. Meaning okay. that he, I think he understands, hey, you're obviously trying to fix something that I don't even know about. So I'm just going to fuck off. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. But then yeah. how would that – that one's not the one that goes to France because the third one knows everything. So he'd be telling the second or the first one everything that happened. Okay. Yeah. I think that makes sense. But there's times when you're like – yeah. I mean the thing about this movie is it, it's, it's well contained. Like it can't get too crazy because, again, your starting point is always when the first box was invented. And so that's always the point in the failsafe that is that was right. started that was turned on before the first machine. Mm-hmm. So there's always a point in which they can go into the failsafe and go before, but the failsafe is the starting point. And we know that Aaron and Abe both use the failsafe like three times. Twice Aaron used it twice, and Abe used it another time. Unless they were using the failsafe to learn all the conversations, because it's not clear how many times they went through to learn the conversations. Yeah, and it's also not clear. I mean, the narrator says that we only see the final time, but it's implied that it could have been 10, 20 times they tried to stop the party and things didn't go didn't go as planned, right? But how would they have accounted for their doubles at that point? That's unless, what if, unless if they go back, I think one of the things is that they're in the machine a lot. Okay. So they're not actually doubled when they're in the machine, but I could be wrong. So... 
is there a function that this movie gives us for the doubles to drop out of the timeline? Because when I was looking at the uh, if the they get in page, the box and yeah. go back, if they get in the box and go back, then they become the double. So right? essentially, there's no double that exists. The because apparently you have to be in the box for as long as you're going back or something, or at least yeah. it's a, a formula or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that every time that one of the persons enters the box, they don't exist. They're not, they're in the box. They're not in that timeline anymore. This is, uh, this is mind bending stuff here. This is not great for Um, a podcast because there's lots of graphs that need to be made. Yeah. Which is like, if you go in the box for a day, you start at like 10 a.m. You get in the box at 10 a.m. The next day at 10 a.m., you get out of the box and it's 10 a.m., but yourself isn't there for the entire day because you've gone back. So, okay, so you're missing the one step, though. So when you power it on, once you're planning to get inside the box, you got to leave because you in the future is going to be getting out of that box shortly, right? Right, right. (laughs) So it's like, (laughs) it's like, like, I don't want to see myself getting out of that box. I know I'm going to be back here and and come back around, but... Yeah, and they do account for that. It's just... They do, they do. (laughs) They're like, it's turned on, we're waiting. There there we are. We definitely got in it. Yep. But when you're in it, I imagine there's a time that you're at, I don't know. This is, we need graphs. But there's a lot of I, great, you, I encourage everybody to watch this movie and then immediately YouTube it and watch it. It makes sense. I feel like I saw it and I'm like, oh, I understand it. And as I'm saying this, I, um, I feel like I'm, I'm making the listener go insane. No, I think um, I'm just glad you're here because I would have had no way to describe this movie uh outside of outside of your uh very well put in my opinion explanations i think i think you've done a really good job i think i've uh, been incorrect about the the laws of it i'm well, missing I mean, something with the amount of time that they're in the box i mean it's all not real so i don't feel it's, that it's bad. fast and loose but i i do love the idea of because something that they were talking about when they before they realized supposedly it was time travel it's almost like removing the effects of reality from the thing inside the box Mm-hmm. right and something about that is just so intriguing to me it's like how you can take yourself out of the timeline and insert yourself back in with with an equation um it's i don't know i don't functionally with time travel i'm not sure that's how it would actually work if that's uh if it if it existed and but i do think that something like endgame does play into this same type of idea right how this, so uh, Spoiler, spoilers for Endgame? The way Tony figures it out, which is very silly, but um, he kind of does this inverted Mobius strip, which a Mobius strip is where you can start at one point and go all the way around and end up at the same point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that type of thing. It's like a, almost like a folding of reality where you can have two points in time uh, at the same point in space. Right. And I feel like they're kind of playing with that sort of idea. And yeah, I... <sighs> I don't know what I'm talking about, guys. But I liked, is... I, you know what I liked about it, just to, just to come back, and we'll, we'll, we'll go into our, our final thoughts of this movie. But what I like is that it's disorienting, and it's disorienting yes. for the characters, and it's disorienting for the viewer. And I think, ultimately, they try their best to, met, like, again, back to the inventor thing. They invent something mm-hmm. beyond their under, they don't even know why it's working. And that's, like, right. the first sign that they are in dangerous territory. They're not sure what, what they've done and how it works. They're just, like, we scaled it up from our original design, and we know that it's working this. You know, we, we've mapped out how it works, but we're mm-hmm. not sure. We, we mapped out what happens when we do it, but we're not, again, not sure of the underlying principles of, of how it's working. 
and yet they still decide to do it and they tackle it in the smartest way they can think of, the most logical way of like, okay, we'll avoid these paradoxes. We're going to set these timers. Uh, we've mapped out kind of how the rules of this working, and yet the strain on them physically from experimenting with it and from trying to understand what's happening when surprises happen, of like, why is this person here? We've obviously messed this up. Let's go to the fail safe. You know, they're just super disorienting. The movie starts editing, getting edited weird, and like, um, we start to like see visual distortion, and uh, mm-hmm. the characters uh, can't write. And I think the worst line of dialogue uh, in the movie that le- like part of the parts of this movie are like it. You could see how close, how easy it would be for this to be like another room, like that movie with Tom, Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Yeah, there's even a scene when they're throwing a football. And it made me think of it. Uh, but the movie is shot way better and like actually uses it kind of artfully of a back and forth between the characters and the camera goes back and forth. Uh, but I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, this is like a step away from the room if it was just written terribly. And there's a point. The only room vibe I got was there's a point where Abe's character goes, why can't we write like normal people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which is like a really interesting concept. I just think that line delivery is uh, a little lacking. I would have definitely gone like, all right, let's take that again, Abe. Got this. Um, but uh, I like this idea that they're losing touch with reality because they are essentially manipulating reality and time. It is distorting um, their ability to uh, think and their ability to to their motor skills and and causing degradation and wear and tear on the body that they don't understand. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate that too. It's almost like a neurological disorder or something mm-hmm. that they're that they're experiencing. Yeah, that was. I, I do agree. It, the, the way it plays out is kind of just like uh, it's not it's not the best writing, but I think right. it does at least serve to show that one of them is really concerned with the implications and repercussions of what they're doing, while the other one is just kind of like thinking I'm about doing what this. you can do. Yeah, right. one is think, thinking about the, the 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 causality, and one's thinking about um, what's the what's the opposite of causality. One thing about the reaction, one's thinking about the impact, you know, so I don't know how to. Yeah. And on some level it's selfishness versus, you know, wanting to hold reality together. (laughs) Right. Yeah. One's thinking about what he can do. The other one's thinking about what that doing causes. Right. 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 Short term versus long term. Uh, And I think that is, again, I want to go back to the parallel between, you know, inventing and, 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 and building and creating is like, I can create this thing and it will accomplish this. And then there's, the other side of like, but if I, if I succeed, then what does that mean for the rest of the world? Even if what I want to do is maybe in the best interest of myself or my family or humanity, uh, you always have to think about, but if, if it works, what's, what's going to happen, uh, which I think is really cool. So this is basically just Jurassic Park is what you're telling me. They spent so long <laughs> wondering if they could. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, but it's like Jurassic Park if they could, like, go back in time and stop the dinosaurs from existing. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's the very asteroid. Good. It's got very similar themes of m- the man meddling in science. No, yeah, but, I, was, I was being facetious. I'm sorry. No, but I think you're right, you know. Uh, I don't think you're you're incorrect. So let you know let's let's bring it to an end. We're not trying to go super long. We had a three hour ep- Endgame episode. You should check that out. It's insanely long. If you listen to the whole thing, you're a true loyal listener, and we appreciate you. Seriously, uh, we're not going to go super long on this. Brian, do you have any final closing thoughts on this movie? I'm sorry that I am uh, not smart enough and didn't do enough research to fully explain this movie to the listeners. But with that being said, go and watch this movie. 
it's it's the kind of movie that I think even if you aren't a um, aspiring director, you can appreciate the uh, low budget and the simplicity of this movie. I think it works really well, regardless of um, uh, the the non blockbustery elements of it. The it's it's an edgier seat movie. It's fast paced. Um, I think it's like what seventy minute runtime. Seventy seven minutes. And it, it honestly feels longer and not a terrible way. It's just that it's it dense. I just think it's a dense film as far as trying to follow it, right, and, and engaging you. You definitely can't zone out. If you zone out for a second, if you look at your phone for like five minutes, you're, you're, you're lost. You're done. Game over. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know how the listeners feel about subtitles. I think this is one because – and I didn't realize the issues that they had with um, sound recording. But I think mm-hmm. this is one where subtitles can really help and uh, – bring a little bit more awareness the first time through but like i said earlier this is a movie that nearly demands rewatch and i think rewards it um on on a good level even though i still don't understand this movie so uh maybe that doesn't speak too highly of uh the effectiveness of (laughs) the the storytelling but um for a couple of amateur actors and a first-time director it's it's a great film Uh, i think it deserves all of the the uh praise that it's gotten and i need to see um shane Carruth's uh second movie which i've also heard is really good upstream color i, I don't know if you've seen that one Christian. no i have not yeah as long as imdb i know he did some work on um uh the the go oh god what's it called a ghost story oh really yeah yeah okay i really I, liked that one as I well exactly what credit he has on it but keep going um but yeah, just if you're interested in time travel, if you're interested in sci-fi, this movie is very much for you. I think the I and it's really interesting that we talked about this week. I feel like these days uh, this stuff is lining up with with my life in a lot of strange ways. But I think it's it's very for me personally. Um, it's very you can get very cynical about things and like. Uh, why don't we have XYZ technology? We've been thinking about this stuff for so long. Um, anti-grav technology, limitless energy, all these types of things. And this movie does an incredible job of showing, yes, conceptually this stuff is possible, but the implications for the larger structure of our reality, it calls them into question. And I think it's easy to look past that as we see these characters <laughs> look past um and and forget that it's not that simple necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, I, it, it's almost like if you saw if Chris Nolan made a movie, it's like very Ryan Johnson, very Chris Nolan indie filmmaking. Like if, if this was the the film that Chris Nolan might have made when he was eighteen to like twenty two, uh, it it kind of feels like that, and it's like. It's so weird watching it as an adult, like I said earlier. When I watched it when I was when I was like 17, 18, I want to say I was much more impressed with it. Uh, and I, I feel like watching it now, I'm impressed almost just as much, but in a different way mm-hmm. of, um, of comparing it to... Like, I would have put this on the same level as Brick, and I liked Brick a little bit more when I was younger, but um, it reminds me of that movie, but a little scrappier. It feels a lot scrappier than than something like Brick. But if you if you if you have seen a movie like Brick or some other really well known indies, uh, I think this movie's going to do it for you in, in a lot of different ways. And I think it really just gets a good conversation going and a good. It's a good like thing to chew on as far as understanding time. And I think for me, the reason I chose it is because I think this has the most unique and 
scientific look at time travel and what that would actually look like. Um, but it still, as we found out, doesn't make it any less confusing um, or, you know, plot holy in, in a lot of different ways. But I really appreciate the logical um, look at, at how time travel would work. And that's kind of what I appreciate about it. And uh, it, it's been fun diving in. And I really enjoyed listening to the commentary and then watching a bunch of YouTube videos on the, the, the plot and the timelines. And I swear to God, I went into recording this podcast, Brian, and I told myself, I understand it. I'll be able to talk about it. And as we <laughs> talked about it more, I'm like, you know what? I don't. But uh, I kind of leave that up to the fact that the, the movie is a little unclear, especially in the third act of, of kind of the final events and the overall timeline and the idea. But I know they play with like probability. I think that has a lot to do with it about, you know, what probable causes can happen and, and how time works. But Dive into it. Let us know what you think. I, I definitely give it a, a good recommend. Uh, it's available on Amazon for like 10 bucks. You can rent it for like three bucks uh, or watch it on YouTube for free, apparently, <laughs> if you can. Very cool. Hey, Brian, what's on next week's episode? Do you even know? I don't know. Um, I was pushing for 12 monkeys. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to lock that in here, but we can, let's do 12 monkeys. We're doing it. 12 Brian's monkeys? Pick. Next week, All we're right. coming out with some 12 monkeys. I've seen that movie once. Uh, it's Mr. Terry Gilliam, if I'm not mistaken. It is indeed. Oh, so yeah, definitely, definitely your week. I chose like <laughs> the indie punk rocker uh, who had one good song, <laughs> but I still celebrate. And you're choosing uh, Terry Gilliam, who I don't even know. I don't even know how. To, I don't know how to describe. Visionary. He's he's the the most anti Hollywood Hollywood director. I think that's the the way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> he hates Hollywood, but he can't make movies for under fifty million dollars. <laughs> I absolutely hate Hollywood. Now I'm going to need three hundred million dollars right. for my movie about a man and a penguin in dreams. <laughs> this is it. This is it. I, I'm I'm all about the Gilliam though. It's he's. I don't think he's the uh, the most consistent director, but. Um, He's just consistently bold, you know. He's consistently <laughs> his eyes are always bigger than his stomach. I think when it comes to this that. is this is fact. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. But very cool. And well, you know, the, the problem I have with a lot of time travel movies is is kind of the problem I have with a lot of Terry Gilliam movies, uh, which is that uh, they fall apart under scrutiny. <laughs> yeah, the thing that holds them together sometimes is is so out there. And so illogical that that it becomes hard to get behind. Like Back to the Future, we're gonna, we're probably going to talk about Back to the Future this month. I don't love that movie. Spoiler alert! Like I don't love it, and I haven't seen it recently. So. I haven't either. So I'm interested to come back to it. We'll definitely, if we don't discuss it solely, we'll I think we'll all rewatch it at least. I know that it's everybody's favorite time travel movie, like of all. It's just time. iconic, right? It's iconic, and it, people love it. And I love Michael J. Fox. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Uh, and I remember it being fun. Uh, so it'll be interesting to revisit it. I'll, I'll share more thoughts there. I won't get to it myself. I won't Guardians Volume 2 this. Because I remember Guardians Volume 2, I was like, that movie sucks ass. And then I watched it, and I was like, it's one of my favorite Marvel movies. So I can be wrong and change my opinion, people. Awesome. So that is going to do it for episode 31. 31 of these, Brian. It is crazy. It's it's flown by. I, I don't know. Um, it's exciting, really. Yeah, it's really cool. I don't think I've ever done anything this consistent in my life. I hope people are enjoying it. If you're not enjoying it, write us at popholicscastgmail.com and tell us how we can, if you've made it this far and you're not enjoying it, tell us why you hate yourself and why you'd listen to a show that you're not enjoying. It's very <laughs> confusing. But also tell us how we can do a better job. Follow us on all the social media. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcast and 
go ahead and leave us a review. Comment on the Facebook page. We, we love reading fan feedback. Uh, it's one of our favorite things to do here on the show. So we'd love to hear from you. All right, Brian. I'm going to leave now. Are you going to leave too? I think it's about that time. Luckily, I'm not reporting live from the bathroom, um, yeah. which is a joke that no one will understand. Yeah, but. that's a joke between <laughs> us. Uh, and uh, people minds might go uh, to the uh, down the toilet. There you go. Uh, <laughs> but thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, consume consciously. Have a great uh, commute, a great day, a great night, a great week, whatever it is. Have a great, great, and then and then jump into the box. Go back three days and then have uh, a, a great day again. Why not? Just a couple of time travelers traveling time. <laughs> Dude, that's going in the next. That's going in the intro next week. Thank you. Boom. All right, guys. Later. Pop. 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 Pop.